Hi, this is Christian Kuhn of Urban Village Church in Chicago. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It's been a couple of weeks. I was off in Southeast Iowa officiating my cousin's wedding and had a great time there, but it's always good to be back with you, too. We are in the middle of a sermon series that we are calling Worth, and I will talk about that in a second. But first, let me read our scripture for today. This is from Acts 16, verses 11 through 15, and then I'm going to jump down and read verse 42. We're in the part of Acts where we are learning a lot about the history of the early church and some of the significant individuals who helped start the early Church of Christ. So here are these words. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira, and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. Then she and her household were baptized. She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. And now verse 40. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home, and when they went, and when they had seen and encouraged the brothers there, they departed. May God's blessing be on the reading and living out of this holy word. So a few months ago, I received the annual phone call from my alma mater, Simpson College, a small college just south of Des Moines, Iowa. And some of you may receive these calls, if not from schools that you attended, then certainly probably from organizations or politicians that you have supported at one time or another. You get the phone call for people wanting you to give money. And so I'm used to it, certainly from Simpson. I've given to Simpson uh, every year faithfully. And uh, every year they kind of do the same thing. So there are students who make these phone calls. I did the same thing when I was an undergraduate too. And so when I picked up the phone and started talking to this young woman, I kind of knew what the whole deal was. This particular night I was, I can't remember if I was just feeling impatient or had things to do, but I know that they have a script in front of them where they try to build a relationship with you. And so the woman or the student who was calling me was looking over my activities in college, and she was kind of listing them off to me as if I needed a reminder. And so there was a part of me was like, this is all well and good, but just make your ask and let's go on and get on with our evening. But either she was an excellent, excellent actor, or she was genuinely interested. She looked through some of my activities and she would say things like, wow, you were really involved in a lot of things. And my initial thought was, you're trying to butter me up, aren't you? To try to give me, to help me, to try to get me to give more. But then she kept going on and on and asking me questions about some of the activities that I did. And then I shifted from cynicism to actual thinking, I think she's really interested in in who I am and, and building a relationship with me. And so we talked for about 10 minutes. I don't know if that was probably too long. She had other calls to make, but she would ask certain questions about activities that I participated in. And then I would ask her questions about where she's from and the things that she's involved in at Simpson. And it became a really great conversation. And at the end, of course, I committed to giving to Simpson, which I planned on doing all along. But the conversation reminded me of why I give to Simpson, if it is 
helping to nurture and build young leaders like this woman on the phone, then I'm in. I want to give. I know that this institution is worth the investment that I make. It's a question that all of us have to ask for ask ourselves when we get that phone call, when we get that call from an institution or an individual or whomever. Why should I give to you? Why should I give you a donation? It's also a question that you should probably ask of your church if you are connected to a faith community at all. Is a church worth your financial investment? Now, obviously, I certainly hope that many of you say yes to this, but you shouldn't give just because I say so. Certainly, there are times I kind of wish that that would be the case. I could just tell you give, and everyone would give very, very generously. And I think also you should probably give because of your belief and faith in God. But I also hope that you give to a community of faith because it is worth your investment. So we meet a person in the Bible today who also had to answer that question. Is this institution, or in the case of this text that we read today, is this group of Jesus believers and followers, is it worth my generosity? Is it worth my resources? So let's take a quick review again of what we're reading here in the book of Acts. Often when we read scripture, we kind of just pluck out a section and we don't really know the context or what's going on. So as I noted earlier, the book of Acts, among any things, it's the full title is the Acts of the Apostles. So it helps us to give a sense of what happened after the resurrection. What did people do? How did they organize? How did they tell this good news of what they had experienced? And so in many ways, it's kind of a book of history. The author of Acts, many people, many scholars believe, is also the author of the Gospel of Luke. So in many ways, you probably could have smushed Luke and Acts together to get a sense of the story, the arc of the narrative that Luke wants to give here in Acts. So in Acts 9, we are first introduced to this man named Saul, who would later become Paul. You may have heard of him, probably the most influential individual in spreading the news about Jesus and starting the early church. Saul, Paul, had a transformative experience of the resurrected Christ and then devoted his life to building churches and sharing the good news. So we pick up again with the story of Paul in Acts 13, and we see immediately that Paul would be the favorite of any airline, of any um, miles program, because he was traveling all over the place. We see this in uh, Acts 13, right off the bat, He's commissioned in a city of Antioch, and then he goes from Silencia, Cyprus, Salamis, Paphos, Perga. Today, in the text that I just read to you, we read a little bit of this nature of what Paul and others are doing. Again, verse 11 says, We'd set sail from Troas, went to Samothrace, Neapolis, there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia. So Paul is traveling everywhere to start these new communities of faith because he is convinced the power and transformation of the gospel, the power and transformation of the risen Christ, and what a difference that can make in people's lives then, and also Paul believed of what would happen in the future when Christ came again and would transform the world. So here we see that they've landed in this city called Philippi, which was kind of a cosmopolitan city of about 15,000 people or so, most scholars believe. 
uh, very, as I said, very cosmopolitan, a diverse number of people, an influential city. So they're there. And interesting, it says, the text tells us that they looked for a, per, a place to gather for, a place of prayer. Now, notice that it is not a synagogue. The text tells us, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate of the city by the river. <clears throat> So they go not to a traditional place for worship, which they sometimes did, not a synagogue, but instead outside. They're going outside the box of tradition here. And not only that, but they begin to gather with women, with Gentile women. Paul Walaski is a professor emeritus of biblical studies at Union Presbyterian Seminary, and he notes this. He says, it is a bit of a surprise that this well-known Pharisee, this is a religious scholar like Paul, and well-known teacher would carry on a serious discussion with a group of women. So here we see that this is a new movement, a community of faith that is going to break the rules. They're not going to just do it in synagogues. They're going to do it outside in different spaces, and they're going to do it with groups of people that many religious scholars would ignore, women and Gentiles. But Paul gathers here with them. He senses something about them. They are wanting to learn more about the faith, to be a devoted group of people dedicated to prayer and learning. Now, we don't know exactly what Paul said. He sat down, which is, a, which is signifying that he's going to teach them something. We don't know what he said. We don't know how he taught. We don't know what others may have said in that context. But we do know that it made a difference in one person's life. This woman named Lydia. Now, we don't read a whole lot about Lydia in the Bible, but what we do read, I think, is really interesting to note, and I think we need to pay careful attention to it. Because, again, like Paul going outside the walls of the synagogue, teaching to a group of people that most wouldn't pay attention to, Lydia breaks some stereotypes. A woman who owns her own business, we read from this text, she's a dealer in purple cloth, owns her own business, has her own home. So she's perhaps single. We don't know if she's divorced or widowed, or maybe her husband is not a believer. But here we see an independent businesswoman of some influence. It says, the text tells us that she's a dealer in purple cloth. Now, what does that mean? Scholars believe that purple, or scholars note and have learned and in their research that purple clothing was destined for the rich and royal in the Roman world at the time. It symbolized power and influence. So somebody who dealt in purple cloth was somebody who rubbed shoulders daily with the rich and famous. So in addition, Luke uses Lydia's name, which is important, not just some anonymous woman. Luke uses her name, which may also indicate her social prominence. So this is a woman who has some influence and power, a woman breaking some boundaries, but Paul develops this relationship with her. And as Paul is teaching, the text tells us that the Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. So here is a woman, even though she's a woman of prominence, she also is in spiritual need. We also know about her that she's a God worshiper, which means that this is a Gentile woman attracted to Judaism, not not yet any a person who was going to say that she's a follower of Jesus, but she's interested. You may say she was kind of an early spiritual, but not religious person. So she's interested and she's, she's learning here. Now notice some things about Lydia here. A, she's open. She's open to hearing, open to listening, open to learning. The second thing to note is that transformation takes place. 
when she, after the Lord opens her heart, after she listens to what Paul said, then she wants to become baptized. She's transformed by what Paul is teaching her, is convinced the difference that Jesus can make in her life. And so she is baptized, but not just Lydia, but her household. She does not want to go through this by herself. She is convinced that this is good news and wants others to experience it too. Have you ever known someone who is so taken by something that they want to share it with others? Certainly we may know of, or maybe you're one of these people, if you have a really good experience, maybe at a, at a restaurant or you read a really good book or whatever it is, and you want others to experience it too. And I know our society looks a little bit askance at those when it comes to faith. And if you are so convinced that this is good news and you want to share it with others, some people do that very naturally. Others are more hesitant because, not surprisingly, there are individuals, well-known individuals in our world who claim the title of Christian and they don't give Christianity a very good name. So that leaves some people with a bad taste in their mouth and they may think, well, all Christians must be like this. So we're hesitant maybe to, to, to bring others saying, I want to tell you, I want to show you, I want to share with you this news that has transformed me. But this is what happens to Lydia. I have an aunt, Aunt Rhonda, who, uh, who I love. She's married, she married my, my dad's brother. And um, she, they, she's always one of these people who experiences something and then wants others to experience it too. She grew up in Iowa, has moved around when she and my uncle got married. They lived in Missouri for a time, then moved to Michigan, and now they live in Stillwater, Oklahoma. My uncle teaches at, or is an administrator at Oklahoma State University. They lived there not very long, less than two years. And we were for this wedding that I was at last weekend. Um, I was talking to her about Oklahoma and life and politics, and, uh, and I mentioned, you know, I may be going to a conference next March in Oklahoma. And I could see immediately that something happened in Rhonda. She transformed because she already had uh, my agenda plotted out. I hadn't said for sure whether I was going to go, but she knew immediately, oh, when you come to Oklahoma, we need to do this in Oklahoma City. And then, because that's where the conference is, and then we need to do this. And she was talking about the Cowboy uh, Hall of Fame, Cowboy Museum, and all the things that it has. And she was convinced because she had bought into Oklahoma and wanted to share with me the greatness of Oklahoma, too. And I love people like that who are so excited about what they have or what they know and they want to share it with others. I think Lydia did this too. She wanted to share this good news with others. And then after doing this, she then is generous, wants to share her generosity, share what she has with Paul and with others who were starting these early churches. Verse 15, when Lydia and her household were baptized, it says, she urged us, and us, meaning Luke is part of this group too, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. She's sharing her resources. She prevails on them. Later on in verse 40, after they have spent some time in prison, these prisoners, quote unquote, now stay in Lydia's home. She's essentially the first convert, Christian convert in Europe. And she is generous with what she has because she believes she's been transformed. She's open. She's been transformed. She wants others to experience this too. So for Lydia, she knows that this movement is worthy of my investment because of the difference it can make in my life and in others' lives too. So I go back to the question earlier that I asked you and I asked for all of us, why should you give financially to a church? I mean, the church 
any kind of religious institution. Those are uh, those words have negative connotations in our society today. And so we ask ourselves the question, why? Why should I give? Why should we give to a church? For those who are part of Urban Village listening to this, why should I give to Urban Village? Now, we've been at this thing, Urban Village movement, for seven and a half years. And I know sometimes we do a pretty good job on social media and websites and marketing and And people have heard about us, and they may come to Urban Village, and they think these guys have it all worked out. They know how to do church. And sometimes, and not just sometimes, a majority of the time, people come and realize that we also make mistakes. We make a lot of mistakes. We're still trying to figure it out ourselves. And I think there's a tension sometimes with some individuals. They see that and think, oh, they don't have it worked out. They're imperfect. And so they have a decision to make. Do I stick with it and help them? Or do I go and try to find something else that's perfect? And I hate to say it, friends. Or if you have find that perfect institution or that perfect movement, that perfect community of faith, please let me know so I can go and learn from them. So we make many mistakes. And I never want people to have the illusion that we have it all worked out. But I believe that God has worked through us to make a difference in at least a few people's lives. And that is why I believe that this movement, this church, is worthy of your investment. So let me tell you about Jonah Holm. Jonah now lives in Milwaukee. Jonah identifies as transgender and queer. And Jonah spent some time at our Wicker Park site, who become, had become a, a, just a really great leader, a phenomenal small group leader. And Jonah was also a community organizer uh, for an organization that we have close ties with called Community Renewal Society. Jonah began to feel a calling to maybe go into ministry. Um, Jonah had gone to seminary a few years ago, but then finished up her Master of Divinity and uh, decided that Jonah wanted to plant a church in Milwaukee. Jonah was from Wisconsin and was called, felt called to, to go to Milwaukee. And so Jonah went last summer and started this new church along with another person who had gone to uh, Urban Village Record Park. Jo- her name is Jody. Jonah and Jody have been in Milwaukee since the summer. And friends, planting churches is hard work. But Jonah has been at it. And so on October 11th, which is nationally coming out today, Jonah posted something on uh, their Facebook page in talking about this experience. Jonah goes to the coffee shop, and there's a picture. I'll put this up on the Podbean page that they have up on um, their computer saying, I'm a pastor, and I'll buy you coffee. Want to talk? And so as Jonah's working on their computer, um, they have this sign in front of them. And so Jonah was talking about this on Ashley coming out today. And so here was Jonah's post on Facebook page. I'm going to read this pretty much verbatim. And so Jonah said this, I kept getting nervous looks from a table full of middle schoolers next to me. One had pink hair, another blue, a third wore a super gay hat. And then in parentheses, Jonah says, as in looked rad. A fourth was painting, painting the no uh, hate logo on the other's cheeks. They wore GSA buttons with J, uh, Gay Straight Alliance buttons. And I thought about how different middle school might have been for me if I had had a crew like them. Jonah continues, I get a lot of looks now for my super gay haircut or when I out myself as trans, etc. But it tends to be a different look than the one I get 
when I out myself as a pastor. If I hadn't had my sign up, the looks from that table might have been one of knowing solidarity. My public display of queerness could have been merely combined with theirs to make the whole coffee shop sparklier. But the sign that says I'm a pastor is loaded with subtext for most queer readers. Depending on their history with religious leadership, it might also say to them, I'm not trustworthy, or I'm judging you, or worse, I believe... I don't, I, be, I don't believe you. I don't believe you deserve the unashamed. Or I, sorry, or I'm judging you. Or worse, I believe you don't deserve the unashamed, unconditional love of God. When I left the coffee shop, I ended up in the atrium with the student who had blue hair and the super gay hat. On my way out the door, I smiled and said, "Happy coming out day." As I walked away, I heard the student utter a bewildered but pleased "Thanks." The person in the blue hat turned to them and said, Wait, what did they say? And the student in the hat repeated my greeting, and the last thing I heard before I turned the corner was the squeals of the blue hat's delight. That is such a simple and yet powerful story. But it moved me so much because it reminded me of why I personally give to Urban Village. We're going to talk next week about percentage giving and tithing. What does that weird word mean? And my wife and I give more than 10% of our income to, to this movement. And I do that because of stories like this, because Jonah came to Urban Village and I think would say that they had a transformative experience of the risen Christ, not because necessarily of anything we did, but because of what Christ did in them, because of what we had started in the midst of our imperfections of the midst of the ways that we mess up jonah still experienced christ and felt moved then to take this message of radical love to milwaukee and do the same and so because of people deciding that urban village is worth their investment that created a space for jonah and allowed christ to work in jonah's heart and move Jonah to go to Milwaukee to one day sit in a coffee shop at a computer and say, I'm a pastor, and identify themselves as a pastor to a group of middle schoolers who are trying to figure out who they are, what they believe, what their identity is, and to have them look at this pastor and say to them, happy coming out day, and plant a seed. Oh, I have no idea. If anything happened to that group of middle schoolers, we may never know. We may not never know for 20 years. Maybe one of those middle schoolers will say, you know, there's this time. I had no idea who God was. But on that day, a seed was planted. So many times churches will tell these amazing, and we've done it too, I've done it too, we've told these amazing transformative stories so that people can know why they should give, why church is worth their investment. And Those stories are great. They keep me going. But it's also stories like this. There is a to be continued on that story because we don't know what will happen. But I'm grateful for it. I believe that that seed was planted. And I'm grateful that my own contribution, financial contribution, helped with that. Why should I give to church? Don't do it because of everything we do right. Do it because we mess up, but still are out there trying to change lives through Christ in small ways. If you're listening to this podcast, if you're not part of Urban Village and you don't have a community of faith, 
I would encourage you and put this on the Podbean page. We're going to start asking people to make their financial pledges to Urban Village in 2017. And if you could and think about it, go to that link and make a contribution to what we're about. It can be just a few dollars. Maybe you can contribute five bucks a month or just a flat $5 donation, whatever it is, because I think we're worth it, but not because of what we do, but because of what Christ does in us. It affected people like Lydia and Jonah and the unnamed middle schooler who may know some way, somehow, that they're loved. And I think that's worth something, too. Amen. Friends, thank you for listening and sharing and responding. You can always respond to me, Chris at UrbanVillageChurch.org. Twitter, I'm at Christian Kuhn, and always happy to respond back. So until next week, which will be the final sermon of this sermon series, I hope that you have a blessed, blessed week and know of Christ's love for you too. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my life.